episode start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein, here with Nicholas Zart. As a reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. How go things this week, Nicholas? Thanks, uh, Matthew, and hi, everyone. Everything is pretty weird here in Southern California. I kid you not, we have cold weather, hot weather, cold weather, hot weather. And sometimes we wake up with 40 degrees. By the way, that's Fahrenheit. And at the end of the day, it kind of reaches like 80 degrees. So we have these wild fluctuations. But everything is fine and everything is great. What about up there where you are, Matthew? The weather is a little bit unusual here in Vancouver right now because it's not raining. And uh, this is the dead center of our rainy season, which extends from roughly uh, September to about May. Hmm. Today it's not raining, which is wonderful. That's always good. (laughs) uh, It's it's always nice to avoid the gray, depressing onslaught of drops (laughs) of the sky. Further to uh, the request for reviews, if you're not inclined to send a review, but uh, you have a full wallet, money is also good with the Clean Technica Patreon account, which is at patreon.com forward slash clean technica. So Nicholas, why don't you start us off? Absolutely. So you know what? I, I, I've had a lot of fun writing the following story for, for many, many, many reasons. For one thing, it's like the culmination of 10 years of covering the electric vehicle field. So I'm, I'm going to take you a little bit on a, on, a, on a history of what happened. So this is about Ferrari. Now, we all know Ferrari, high-end exotic cars, gasoline cars, staunch believers in internal combustion engine. That's pretty much it, right? Well, no, things are changing. And things are changing because, da-da-da, drum roll, Ferrari announces its own electric roadster. So that one was pretty interesting. And of course, we pretty much all knew it had to happen. But how it happened is really the interesting thing. It starts off about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we have GM, Ford, and Chrysler here in the U.S., and they're all happy churning out their huge, big, bloated cars, and everything is fine. And this is right at the cusp of 2008. 2008, everything explodes. Everybody's caught with their pants down. Everybody's drinking champagne, paying the price of beer. And, of course, nobody has anything to show for. Cars got bigger, more bloated. Consumption has gone up, despite all the work done to make internal combustion engines a little bit more fuel frugal. But Chrysler at the time, being on its own, had a uh, a department that they called Envy, E-N-V-I. And that department was made so that they would come up with electric vehicles. And they had three electric vehicles that were really cool. One of which was a Lotus Elise with an electric motor. So what does this remind you of? Obviously, the Tesla Roadster. So back then, you had this unheard of little startup from California called Tesla Motors at the time that had this really cool little uh, Lotus Elise that they had thoroughly reworked and everything. And you had the Chrysler Envy. So both cars used the same platform, one heavily modified, the other one not so much. Even though the Envy was a little heavier, it made up with more torque and horsepower. So we were excited. We thought, wow, head-to-head competition within the same kind of cars. This is fantastic. But, of course, you know what happened. 
Chrysler falls down, completely bankrupt, and Fiat comes in. Within that same year, in 2008, Fiat disbands the NV team, but the NV team does come up again a little bit later on. In the meantime, Fiat owns Ferrari at about 60% of Ferrari at the time and forms the FCA group, Fiat Chrysler Automotive Group. And then it splits off Ferrari a few years later, but it retains 90% of Ferrari. So fast forward a little bit in time now, 2014, Sergio Marchionne is now, Marchionne, sorry, is now the CEO of Fiat and Ferrari. So this is where the uh, interesting uh, Chrysler NV team shows up again. If you remember, the Fiat 500e is basically a Fiat 500 Abarth with an electric motor. And I was really lucky enough to have talked to the uh, head uh, manager of the, of the team. And he talked to me at length about the amount of work they did on that car, which is actually very surprising considering that Marchione is such a stout unbeliever of the EV revolution. Simply put, he doesn't like electric cars he doesn't want electric cars, he doesn't believe there's a demand for it, and he doesn't believe there's a business model. Of course, not a lot of these companies have a business model that embraces electric mobility. But anyway, this guy tells me how they work the um, ABART 500, and all in all, despite the battery pack that they shoved on the floor pan, they only took half an inch from the interior of the car. So it's a great little car, it was fun. But anyway, we also know that this is a carb car. In other words, this is a car that Fiat had to do in order to continue selling cars in the lucrative Californian market. You need to have so many electric cars, right? But after that, nothing. Zilch. And of course, the last year, last year we saw in 2017, we finally saw the Chrysler Pacifica plug-in hybrid, which by the way is an excellent car. And so we thought, okay, well, this is interesting. In 2009, Ferrari drops six hybrid patents. At the same time, denouncing ever, ever making electric cars. And of course, you know what happens a few years later in about 2011, 2012, LaFerrari comes out, fantastic hybrid. And it was the first time Ferrari actually used an electric motor to make it more performant. But here is something that happens. And this is what you really got to love about Tesla. Tesla really knows how to get under the skin of each of these OEMs. Tesla in September says, hey, we are going to make an electric roadster with a phenomenal, what was it, 2.6 seconds for the zero to 60 at $250,000. Now, this is dead smack in Ferrari territory. This is thumbing its nose at Porsche. I mean, you know, we've had the, the 918 uh, hybrid, but so far, eh, nothing has happened with these big guys. They're not coming out with electric cars. So Tesla comes out with that. And of course, what does Ferrari do six months after this happens? Ferrari is now telling us that they're going to have an electric car, an electric roadster, and that it will come before the Tesla Roadster. I just love it because it's, you, you can see the irony in it all. You can see how everything works out in the end. You can see how Chrysler, well, missed the opportunity, came back a little bit later, and then finally it's Ferrari that picks up the gauntlet here. I, I, this story is just amazing. But what, what do you think, Matthew? Yeah, it's very Game of Thronesy, especially with respect to the, <laughs> the different coalitions that uh, Chrysler has been part of. 20 years ago, Daimler bought Chrysler, so it was Daimler Chrysler for a while. And yes, they spun it off. Right. Uh, actually, the joke at the time was that the Daimler executives in buying Chrysler was, were really looking for a raise because even though it was pitched as a partnership, it was really Daimler taking over Chrysler. 
Absolutely. And at the time, Daimler's executives made a whole lot less than Chrysler's executives. But of course, <laughs> we just took over this company. We can't get paid less than the Chrysler executives. And so the biggest result from Daimler's acquisition was that the executives managed to get themselves a massive raise. No conflict of interest there. <laughs> Uh, That's really well said. You're right. Absolutely. I think on the Tesla Roadster, I think they actually claimed 1.9 seconds on the 0 to 60. That's right. Sorry. I think it's interesting in two regards. One is it demonstrates again how Tesla is pushing the envelope forward with the performance vehicles. I have to admit, I not really being a car guy, I wasn't as enthused about a Roadster that accelerates even faster. But now that it's pulling the other players and forcing them to go electric, I can see, okay, there's a strategic and there's a broader pro-EV move in play here. So I guess because I see cars as such a utilitarian thing, I'm, I'm not really, I drive a Prius for crying out loud. I'm not exactly looking out for the nicest looking car. I'm often blind to the advantages that you can develop when you focus on the high end and maybe you create that desire and that need for others to compete with you. It's, it's so true what you're saying because 90% of the population don't really care. They just want four wheels and they want a locomotion means more than anything. That's what EVs do and they really are revolutionizing the way we look at it. But I think this is also something, if you remember well, we called it out a few months ago when, when we found out that Tesla had that Roadster at that price. We said, boy, if this is not going to get under the skin of these exotic car makers, I don't know what else will. And Ferrari, the top dog, the king of the hill comes out and says, we're going to beat you. So it's just, it, I think it's fantastic. It really shows how far things have come. And just remember 10 years ago, even less than that, these car makers were laughing at electric cars. They were poo-pooing the idea. And well, now even Sergio Marconi, CEO of Fiat and Ferrari, now all of a sudden, if you look at what he says lately, he's becoming an EV guy. Incredible. So anyway, great news for everyone. And I don't think any one of us are going to buy either the Ferrari or the Roadster Tesla. Well, unless we play lottery, I guess. <laughs> Again, I get that, that demonstrates that in my case uh, particular, it's important not to be dismissive of ideas, even if they don't kind of fit our perception of the world, because we aren't everyone in the world and there are advantages that can result that we don't expect. You know what? That's, it's, it's well said because I come from a world of Ferraris and Bugattis and Alfa Romeos, you know, 1930s cars. And, and that's the reason why I've always loved cars, because I love the pioneering spirit that they had back then. Yeah, they were inefficient. And it wasn't until I test drove an AC Propulsion e-box and a Tesla Roadster that I thought, wow, this is it. This is the modern pioneering way of moving forward. So, yeah, d different strokes, basically. But it, it's really exciting. Yeah. And in terms of those unexpected twists, <laughs> I guess your next story kind of relates to how the unintended impact of Donald Trump and his whole <laughs> crew getting into Washington is that the individual U.S. states are moving so much more aggressively. It's like it mobilized the opposition. It has mobilized a lot of the clean tech and environmental communities to partner with the policy guys to aggressively, aggressively push forward. This is one of those things where, you know, the pros and cons of living in the USA or the U.S. system is that, yes, it has a federal government, but the federal government is not the overseer of everything. It doesn't have, it doesn't rule completely the entire country. The states are very powerful. I might be off by a point or two here. California is the eighth biggest economy power in the world. So it's much more important than Washington, D.C. And, and frankly said, we could see right now, we don't really care about Washington, D.C. And fortunately, well, things are the way they are. And this administration is wrecking havoc on renewable energy, although 
I think not really in the end because the business model is there. One of the things that we'll always complain about living in California is we pay so much. We pay a lot of tax. Rent is expensive. Buying homes is astronomically expensive. But California is thumbing its nose at the current administration. And the state is continuing its march forward into electric mobility. It's actually doing right now no less than 15 pilot programs. And I'm really excited about them. A few programs that really caught my attention was $43 million are going to go to disadvantaged communities that don't have access to basically electric mobility. And they are exposed to super high levels of air pollution. One of the things that we found out, Kyle and I, when we went to uh, the LA Auto Show, is that a lot of people in this disadvantaged communities would love to have an electric car because they know it's cheaper to run. We know it's, it's more affordable in the long run. But they always equate electric cars with an expensive Tesla. So what this program is going to do is basically help make it somewhat a little bit more affordable. But what it will really do, which I'm very excited about, is that it's going to take out old cars and send them to the junkyard. It's doing a lot of work in that uh, department. Another thing that the California Public Utility Commission is doing is that it's looking into a $1 billion full-scale program that is still spending. It's also trying to double the saving from energy efficiency within 15 years. What this is really doing here is that it's aiming smack down at petroleum companies and their really heavy, super heavy-handed lobbies. Look, the bill focuses on allowing Californians, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, to fill up at home on cleaner electricity for the cost equivalent of $1 a gallon. We know a lot of companies have lobbied very hard the Public Utility Commission so that people don't use solar panels on their roof, not just in California, but everywhere, especially in Florida. And this is basically saying, buzz off. People are more important. People need to be able to choose the way they, they live and the way they drive. And if they want to produce their own electricity, please go ahead, tie into the grid. It will help everybody out. What this really means is that the CPUC the California Public Utility Commission, will force utilities to meet air quality standards and align with the state's program, Charge Ahead California. It's an initiative. The state is going to force, through the CPUC, utilities to reduce greenhouse emissions to 40% below the 1990 levels by 2030. And by the way, again, I think we're going we're gonna to reach that much sooner than that. And by 80% by 2030. 50. The bill concludes with widespread transportation electrification requires electric corporations to increase access to the use of electricity as a transportation fuel. This is another way that California thumb noses itself at the decision makers in, in New York City, Wall Street, and Washington, D.C., and says there's a business model. It works really well. We have the money. We support you guys, not the other way around. I guess New York is actually pretty progressive, but definitely on the Washington, uh, D.C. side, where there are a lot of fossil fuel interests, California would be thumbing its nose at them. Just yes. checking Wikipedia here, it looks like California in the second quarter of 2015 surpassed France to become the fifth largest economy. Yes, it which, went back up again. Yeah, That's so right. it trails only the United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, China, 
and I guess the United States, if you're not breaking it up into all the different states. And I'm sure that there will continue to be massive growth because all the network effects of Silicon Valley will push money to California. It's like a black hole sucking GDP yes. towards it. <laughs> well, it, it, it always hovers around five to, to the fifth or the seventh spot. All right. And yes, it's this second order effect here in Canada in about the year 2000. 3-2004, the ruling Liberal Party had a leadership campaign and the new person, Paul Martin, he was our Prime Minister for a very short time, he reached out to, to try to create this massive liberal supermajority. They were talking about hmm. dominating like two-thirds of the seats in the House of Commons, the Parliament here. The effect of that was to unite the right wing, making it strong enough that it went in power for 10 years. And so here, again, that's, that's like the second order impact. If Paul Martin had been savvy and just tried to, oh, I'm not going to do anything much, no need for you guys to unite against me, then it's possible the liberals could have stayed in power longer. Here, Trump comes into Washington, I'm going to revive coal. He's saying all these aggressive things. Perhaps we have this effect where a lot of the activists who might have been a bit more complacent under a Clinton presidency, Washington will take care of it for us, uh, that energizes the people on our side of the spectrum and say, wow, we have to do this ourselves. We have to do this at the state level. We can't at all rely on Washington. And like you said, the U.S. individual states have a lot of power, which has allowed California to really, really charge ahead. I expect that California will achieve uh, more than 50% of its electricity from renewables by 2030. I think the main challenge in terms of carbon emissions from the grid is that you guys will be closing down Diablo Canyon, that's a big nuclear power plant, in about 2025, which means that the amount of zero carbon electricity being generated will take a dip around there. And nonetheless, the growth rate is so big, I'm sure that California will be able to hit that 50% by 2030, if not years ahead of time. I agree. The one thing we'll have to be, uh, we'll have to watch out for is how much electricity will we be importing from other states as well as water, by the way, mm -hmm. because that's, that's a big problem so far. Mm -hmm. But um, Matthew, I, I want to jump into the next story because I want to say you're a very gutsy person. I, I read somewhere on a website that you wrote a very interesting story about, what's his name, Elon Musk? Yes. So I wrote a piece. I went live today. It's on Naked Capitalism, which is a pretty progressive blog. I've been a reader of that for like 12 years, I think. So Naked Capitalism, uh, they published a piece I wrote, which was titled, Dear Elon, the Tesla base is not the Model S Coalition. The three or four sentence summary of this is that when the Model S came out, Tesla enjoyed the support of this great coalition of techies, folks from Silicon Valley who are white collar, New York Times reading types, you know, the creative class, I think they've sometimes been called, and progressives who tend not to be quite as wealthy, uh, you know, maybe more blue collar, they might be more inclined towards Michael Moore or some of the more left-leaning papers these two groups basically came together to unite against big oil and Tesla benefited tremendously from that. And right now there's a progressive backlash growing against Silicon Valley. There's the book Brotopia coming out next month by a Bloomberg <laughs> TV report, a journalist. And an excerpt of that was in Vanity Fair talking about exploitative uh, behavior that Silicon Valley's titans engage in. Not entirely surprising because the wealthier you get, the more status you get, the less your inhibitions control you. You become more narcissistic inherently. It's not that Roman emperors were necessarily bad people. The crazy ones probably became crazy because they had absolute power, could do anything they want, and there was no need for them to, to rely on reciprocal altruism. They never had to do a good turn to someone to try to hope that someone else will do a good turn to them because they had all the 
the money and power. And all of this relates back to Tesla in the sense that Elon Musk has had a really difficult time being polite with critics and <laughs> and he's lashed out furiously. Like every time he lashes out, it's always a 10. And that's the sign of a, a narcissistic streak. If it was only ever directed against big oil, I'd probably be okay with it. But the problem is that he's been this way towards some of his employees who want to form a union, a woman who is filing a lawsuit alleging sexual discrimination. Basically, his targets are now on the progressive side of the spectrum. And so there's already this momentum against Silicon Valley, which would have put Tesla a little bit on the defensive. But his outbursts they hit exactly the most sensitive button for progressives, which is that antisocial behavior is like the, the most horrible thing you can do, which is why people like myself hate Donald Trump so much. He's rude. He's not respectful for, to others. And yeah, so I'll link to that piece. It's gotten a engaged response from readers. As I outlined in the article, I really hope someone who is close to him reads the article and someone he trusts can sit him down and say, look, I know it seems unfair that these people are coming after you for this and that, but you really can't afford to make enemies because you need as many friends as you can get in any industry because you never know, you know what's going to come back to bite you. I, I really like the article because, again, not to diss Tesla, the product is amazing and everything, but I think your article is really a response to how our society has become over the last decades or so. We're a society, uh, you know, based on a cult of awe. We're in awe when anybody says anything, you know, somebody said something, wow, it's fantastic. Or somebody said something bad, oh, horrible person. And this is pushed by television. This is pushed by Hollywood. This is pushed by the media, which of course, you know, there are only a few companies behind those, those uh, outlets. It, it almost seems like they're all agreeing to dumb down our generation so that we get automatically ticked off at everything and then look up to people as the saviors and everything. When you look back in history, not one person saves an entire nation. It's a group of people and everything. So as you rightfully point, you're right, working at Tesla is hard. And of course, you and I know that because we know people who work there and they're not really happy. Most of them are not really happy. And that's why a lot of people leave. But course the product is great yeah musk has ticked off a lot of people and over the years i i find myself covering the the news you know less and less about tesla because again i like the product but yeah everything else around it not that much fun anymore and a lot of companies are doing a great job of course tesla it wraps it up really fantastic and i think this is what we need to get back to us consumers you know citizens is to start to look at the product don't look at the person or, or like the Chinese say, you know, not the, not the fingers, the moon, the moon. Who cares about the one who delivers the message? That's not the important part. It's what they do. But it's true that Musk, you know, he needs to mellow out a little bit. And I've been saying this, by the way, for, oh God, eight years by now, is that at some point or another, he needs to retire as a CEO, become a chairman, focus on SpaceX and whatever other Hyperloop stuff he wants to do. But he needs to back off a little bit from Tesla because a lot of people are getting offended by Tesla. And, and the worst part about it is if we say that and we're just saying what, what's happening out there, our readers then tell us that we're against Tesla, which we're not. Obviously, we're not. We love Tesla. Oh, my God. If I could have a Tesla, I would have it right now. No problem. But things are what they are. He is really uh, abrasive and dismissive of, of a lot of people. And that's not the way to go forward. Steve Jobs did it really well. He was a unique case. And it also happened in the 90s, early 2000. That was one thing. 
today doesn't really work that well, that kind of stuff. So I, I really, I mean, I seriously, I applaud you for writing this. I thought it was very well written. It's not, not a way of dissing Tesla at all, but it's just a way of saying, hey, what's the difference between Elon Musk and Tesla? And there's a huge one. The products are great. Power walls are fantastic. The roof tiles are amazing. The cars are absolutely brilliant. And that's really it. That's the gist, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, then moving on, seeing as we're uh, heading towards a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my fault. I'm a yapper. Yeah, no worries. So I want to make mention of a story that James Ayer wrote a few days back about how Norway is aiming to expand its oil and gas output in the next five years or so, so that it rises about 10%, 4.4 million barrels per day equivalent. And that is disappointing. I suppose it means Norway will have more money in its sovereign wealth fund if it sells more oil. But since Norway is on the leadership edge, on the very leading edge of so much of these activities, it's a little bit disappointing that they're expecting to, they're planning to increase uh, production given the climate crisis. One interesting overlay on this is that oil prices have been down for a number of years and they are starting to creep back up. And as oil prices rise, we're going to have to adjust our messaging on the superiority of clean tech or fossil fuel free investments over fossil fuel investments, at least for a few years time period. We've had this great tailwind where anyone who invested in oil in like 2011 or 12, five years ago, six years ago now, that commodity price of oil has crashed. So of course, any other business's stock is probably going to do better. Now the prices are going back up. This is the way it is with cyclical commodities. And so we're probably going to have a bunch of cynical people saying, oh, hey, you know, oil was a far better investment than clean tech in 2017 or 2018. We're going to get messages like this. So when we talk about fossil fuel divestment, it might be prudent for us to start now by saying, yeah, there might be a few years when fossil fuels, oil and natural gas, say, perform a little bit better than renewables, but that's a short-term thing because it's a dead end, as we all know. So that's one angle to it. The other angle I was thinking is that this rise in the price of oil will benefit the bottom lines of companies. And this may be an opportunity for us to capitalize on the situation with a carrot and stick approach. Those are great points. You're absolutely right. And, and petroleum is going to go up a little bit more. And that's great because it also forces us to wean ourselves off of it. I mean, you're, you're just making all the best points right here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. I didn't pay you to say that, but um, that's... All right. Give me my $250 now, okay? That's, uh, it's nice that we're on a similar wavelength. Now, uh, with the rising oil price, rising oil price might make it a little bit more difficult to raise carbon prices because that would increase the price of oil and, and consumers will often say, well, look, the government's making oil even more expensive when it's just gone up for the past number of months. So that is one thing that we might have to work with. One point of resistance we may have to overcome, we can expect it. But with oil companies getting uh, more profits, then we can use a carrot and we can say, hey, you guys say that you've changed, you're investing in renewables, well, prove it. Why don't you put most of that new money into renewables as opposed to most of that money or almost all that money into further fossil fuel exploration. So there's a carrot we could uh, dangle there saying, prove yourselves, prove you have changed your philosophy. And on the stick side, some countries have a windfall tax. Basically, if a company in the oil sector is extremely profitable because prices happen to spike up, it's not competent management, it's just that they happen to ride a winning oil price streak, then some governments will take a cut of that excess profitability. I think Norway does that. I'm pretty sure Russia did that at various points. 
And so if we have the situation where the price of oil does go up somewhat, then we can use a stick and say, unless you guys reinvest this money in clean, zero-emitting transportation solutions, we're just going to have to have a windfall tax so that we can indirectly fund our support for electric vehicles through you guys. Either you guys support electric vehicles or we take a bunch of taxes from you and give that to consumers to support electric vehicles. That's just uh, what I want to offer. And I think you're totally right because what's happening right now in the U.S. is totally the opposite around. We give billions of dollars of tax incentives to petroleum companies every year to come up with cleaner ways of burning fossil fuel. There aren't any and we haven't seen any improvement. So you're right. We need to stop that and once and for all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess there's a there's an interesting context where I could imagine that 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, when they were trying to start up the oil sands, before the reality and the urgency of climate change became readily apparent, you could kind of make the argument that in the absence of climate change, fossil fuels, because they can bring a lot more energy into people's lives, they give us electricity, mobility, plastics, they enable things like the internet because we have so much energy we're surrounded in in the first world. It was a good thing to provide these opportunities or incentives for these companies. Now that public good is a public bad because the cost of dealing with all this incremental pollution is rising rapidly. And we could at least put renewable energy companies on the same footing with respect to policy support. And you could argue that we should just completely annihilate the support for the fossil fuel sector and then redistribute all that support to renewables because it is the new thing which will provide all these public benefits. So, yeah. And absolutely. And you know what? In the end, it's my taxes. Yes, absolutely. I just want to make a, a quick little side uh, side note here. Is uh, Speaking of Norway, Avinor is one of the uh, one of Norway's airport operator, and they just came out very loudly saying the future is with electric planes, at least when it comes to local trips. So, so th- there is good news coming from Norway, and and it's exciting to see the Scandinavian countries moving along. But yes, you've made just great points. I have nothing much more to add than that. Okay, well, thank you. That's it for now. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll try to keep it closer to twenty minutes than thirty minutes going forward. We did have to skip last week. We hope you all had a safe commute and please join us next week to get your electric fix. Have fun and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.